0: A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and today a special guest, Lella Haloum. Fraser, we're going to be talking about A-level results today and we've obviously had those results in England, Wales and Northern Ireland this week. They represented a change from the last two years in that they were the first exams that students had sat since the pandemic. Just give us an overview of, of what those results were like.
2: Well, we've had the grade inflation persisting yet again. I mean, normally you get 25% of kids get an ARA star. Last year it was 45%. This year it's 35%. So the government has decided to rig it sort of halfway between normal year and last year. So that means that A-star, the toughest grade you can get into the A-level system, that was achieved or given to, shall I say, 15% of kids rather than 8% of kids. Now, this is, of course, very confusing for the, the students involved. It was worse than last year's, but way, way better than a pre-pandemic year. But of course, the problems this creates is for universities. We have, you know, by no means all A-able students go on to university. Those that do will be applying to various courses. And then you've got the situation where you've got, say, a Russell Groups course, say a tough course. You'd have enough places for, I don't know, the top 8% to get A-stars, but not for the top 15%. But these universities are finding it impossible to distinguish, really, between anybody and what would have been the genuine top tier of results. So that is the problem with grade inflation. Superficially, it might create more happy kids, but it places a question mark under a lot of the value of these exams. It makes things very difficult for universities who aren't quite sure who to give offers to. And one of the things that was um, struck by this year was that there was hardly any offers in the clearing system. Normally, when you go into the websites, you can find several offers, normally from pretty good universities to do history, biology, straightforward, very good subjects. But this year, we had not only the kind of chaos of the grade inflation, but a lot of deferred entries, people who were sitting out the madness of lockdown years, who didn't want to start university, that would have to be told to stay in their dormitory for the first chunk of the year. As a result of those deferred entries, there was a big drop in the number of places available for students this year. So you did end up with pretty much the universities offering everything they had to give was given on the first time around with not much left in clearing. So a lot of confusion still remains. And the system is, while tidier than it was this time last year, is still a bit of a mess.
1: Now, Lella, I introduced you at the start of this podcast as a special guest. And that's because you are someone who got their A-level results this week. So how did it go for you?
0: Yeah, so for me, A level results day was yet another kind of insignificance to me, given that I was rejected from all of my universities by the Easter holidays. So I went to results day knowing that I wasn't going to university this year. I was having to take a gap year, not by choice. And I received the grades that I was hoping for, but one of them has had to be sent back for um, an appeals process. So it's been, yet again, a bit more uncertainty and further disappointment caused for me and a lot of my peers too. And what sort of universities had you applied to? I applied to mainly the top 10 universities, all Russell groups. And what was the subject you were going to be studying or hoping to be studying? To study politics and international relations. So aspiring young change Is
2: Isabel, if I can just save Leila's blushes here and say... Um, Something about it. She's one of the most extraordinary young women that I've come across. I mean, during GCSEs, she when the GCSEs were cancelled, she set up this kind of online ideal learning environment so kids like her could continue to learn at pace. Incredibly entrepreneurial thing to do when you were sixteen. She caught the attention of IBM, who then hired her as a youth ambassador. I'm sure she'll correct me on the term of that. She was given a Diana Award for her humanitarian work during the pandemic. And she was also, she's spoken at events organized by the United Nations. Now, if somebody like that can't get a place to study politics at a decent university, I'm not sure who can. So I think, you know, Lella's achievements, although she's probably too modest to say say so herself, are about as great as you could really expect out of any sixth former. And to be predicted two A stars and an A, as she was, should have been the icing on the cake. And yet she ends up with no offers from all five universities.
1: And Lella, we're not very touchy feely on the Coffee House Shots podcast, it has to be said. But, but how do you feel about this rejection? Because as, as Fraser says, it does slightly beg a belief.
0: Exactly. And to be honest with you, I think that the last two years have just been filled with uncertainty and what I think could have been avoidable failures. I know when my GCSEs were cancelled, I sat looking at the news headlines, watching my peers in the years above who were getting their A level results, watching their university offers fall through because of the centre assess and teacher assess grades. So for me, I thought at least I've got another two years and that's not quite my position and I've got my A levels yet. But no, I really think that we could have avoided the that we continue to face. Um, I don't think my generation will ever truly recover and our whole academic learning environment and also personal and professional self-growth has been so impacted by the last two years. I think that educational and economic inequality continues to widen and the impact of that is disproportionate on my generation and quite frankly devastating. Now, Fraser, there was a, an interesting shift
1: in government policy this week when the education secretary, the, the current education secretary, I think is probably the better way of terming it at the moment, James Cleverly, was asked whether he was comfortable with universities prioritising students from low income backgrounds when deciding between an application from two students with the same grades. That's unusual, isn't it? Because normally conservative ministers have shied away from saying that, that they're at least in James Cleverley's words, not uncomfortable with that.
2: Yes, that's right. And it's, I find it quite worrying because it moves away from what universities ought to be about, and that's meritocracy. I think that you you play the hand you're dealt in life. And I think, of course, we should do everything we can to help kids from poorer backgrounds. I'm involved with the Social Mobility Foundation, which does a lot to help people from more deprived backgrounds get into top universities. But the idea that you should be counted down because you happen to go to a private school or because you, parent, you happen to be born into a wealthy family... That is kind of negative discrimination, which is not meritocracy. So you get the idea here that, say, if you're, if you're born into a wealthy family, there's the feeling that now the odds are stacked against you. I think this was one of the first years where students from uh, poorer backgrounds were more likely to get into university than students from richer backgrounds. Now, I would be neutral on whether that's a good or a bad thing as long as the grades are there. Now, of course, you can always, I think you should always adjust for the fact that somebody from a state school that's very unlikely to, does isn't very used to getting kids into top flight universities. I would mark a kid like that up for probably not having the elite caliber of tuition that people that say a top performing grammar school might have or top performing private school. So there is room for latitude within that system. But the moment we move away from meritocracy, we lose something very precious, not just in the British education system, but in Britain as a country. And that is the idea that you can pull yourself ahead by your own efforts, that you will not be held back by discrimination, whether that's straightforward bigotry or reverse bigotry. So when you start to use universities as a tool for social engineering, I think you cross a dangerous divide there. And and the problem is that this will make lots of kids worry. Are they really going to be judged for what's inside them or the size of their parents' house or lack thereof? So I, I think that when you move away from the content of the character, the content of the intellect, and onto something else, then you move away from meritocracy.
1: Lella, I have no idea what your accident of birth has been, but how do you feel about that being something that universities do take into account now in quite the way that they do?
0: Yeah, I think I've been quite lucky with my upbringing. However, I think that considering the situation of the pandemic, not only have there been Existing economic inequity, but I think that the pandemic has only broadened that, especially for young people and underserved and underrepresented groups like those who maybe didn't have access to technology, didn't have Wi Fi during the pandemic, faced disproportionate teacher shortages, or maybe even had personal losses due to COVID. I think for me, I've been quite lucky in that the opportunities that you outlined that I've had with IBM and proactively sought for myself and my kind of proactive spirit to make the most out of the lockdown. That's simply Something that a lot of my peers would have struggled to do, just given their economic position and their place within society. So, even though I do often feel like quite disgruntled by my current position and the fact that I'm not going to university this year, I do kind of consider myself quite lucky and do acknowledge the position of privilege that I kind of continue to bear, given that there are so many more young people who could, you know, they just continue to face the worst of situations, and it's only kind of worsen by their economic position within society. Now Fraser, these A-level students have spent
1: quite a lot of their education time under a Conservative government. So what can we conclude about how well Conservative education policies have worked for these school leavers?
2: I think you can split that quite simply into pre-lockdown and post-lockdown. Now pre-lockdown The Conservatives have done a pretty good job on reducing inequality in schools. When you look at all sorts of metrics, who gets the best GCSEs, who gets into Oxford and Cambridge, state school pupils had a far narrower gap with private school pupils than they did in 2010. But when lockdown came along, it probably reversed about 10 years worth of progress on inequality. So all of a sudden, the cruelty of lockdown, the great unfairness of it, was that it threw every child back on their home resources. So if you take my kids, for example, they were very lucky to have a bedroom each. They had an iPad each. They could sit. They could learn. They had quiet. They had the resources. But I think back of, of Sasha Javid, the um, former chancellor. When he was growing up, there were seven of them in a two-bedroom flat. Sasha didn't even have his own bed, let alone his own bedroom. A family like that, during lockdown, they wouldn't have been sitting there with like five iPads to share between five kids. They would not have made it through lockdown. And I think it is very, very difficult to make good the damage there. And I don't really think saying to these kids okay, let's give you a, a far greater mark than your work warrants, is compensation. What they deserve is remedial teaching. They deserve up, catch-up tuition. And that would come at a huge cost. A cost when Boris Johnson appointed an education czar to ask him much it would cost and he got the answer. He said, no, no, I can't afford that. I'm going to spend a fraction less than that. So I think that the Michael Gove reforms, the free schools, the toughening up of the curriculum, they were very progressive in reducing the gap between rich and poor. But the damage done by lockdown has probably eroded all of that progress and more. And my concern is that that damage will not be repaired until we can talk plainly about what has just happened. And by the way, let's not forget the kids who left school after the age of 16... There's never going to be an opportunity to make their education back up to them. Let's not also forget the kids who are on apprenticeships. So many of them were furloughed or told that the in-work learning component of their apprenticeship was going to be cancelled during lockdown. So the amount of young people that are there who've had their education denied to them, I think is really quite substantial. And that is a debt which I think government even now should find a way of making good.
1: Now, Lala... It strikes me that a lot of the growing up and learning that happens at university, you've already got under your belt, given the experiences that you've had. So do you think that there's any point in you going to university? Do you think you may actually come out of your
0: gap here and think, you know what, I'm just ready to get on
1: with adult life? I
0: do get asked this question a lot Um, however I feel like with my work what I've done is almost gain the practical experience prior to gaining the theoretical knowledge and while I have really benefited from what I often say uniting industry in the classroom and in my case looking at technology beyond the textbooks I still do desire to just gain that theoretical underpinning behind my knowledge and interests so I would be keen to get a degree perhaps it's just the traditional thing and kind of the done thing, the most common kind of approach that a lot of my peers and family, friends and have all taken. However, yeah, I do still think I do see interest in adopting a degree because I'm always such a naturally curious person and what I consider a lifelong learner. So I would like to go to university. Fraser, we have a
1: lot of young people coming through the doors of The Spectator thanks to the social mobility work that you do. Do you still advise them to go to university if they want to be journalists or or sort of work in our industry? Or are you cooler on it now?
2: I am cooler on it now. And I, I certainly, you know, when we take on young people, not just interns, but others, we don't even ask if they've got a degree. We've got a no CV policy. We don't ask about education. We set an aptitude test. And we're sort of agnostic, you know. When we um, one of the most impressive young people we had last year was Alexa Rendell, and she was a internship here in the podcast program. And she was an apprentice. She was eighteen. I think she'd had she'd been given a a good offer to read politics at a good university, but turned that down because she thought that she knew what she wanted to be, and she didn't think that all of that debt was going to help her or that, as Lella puts it, the theoretical basis that you get in a politics degree would have been worth the money. So, uh, and I was really, this was a young woman who knew exactly where she was going in life. We tried to hire her, by the way, we, all, we offered her a job, but she she's now a sports journalist, a very successful one. She wasn't quite into politics. So for people like that, I think you need to ask a pretty difficult question as to if if you are going to end up with, I don't know, 50, 60 grand's worth of debt, is it really worth it for what you're going to get? And journalism as well is a very, it's not particularly academic profession. In any ways, it's it's almost an anti-academic profession. We try to simplify and we do learn at pace here. So I think for a lot of people now, they will will be asking difficult questions. My own gut feeling is that there are, you know, most courses in most Russell Group universities are probably worth the money. But there are a lot of other courses there that simply aren't. I also think the young people are missold higher education. They're told, you know, general figures, like your average graduate makes 100 grand more over the course of a lifetime than a non-graduate. But that's an average figure, which includes doctors and lawyers and whatnot. There are several courses where there is no graduate premium to speak of. So by all means, people can do that. I mean, having a salary premium is not the only reason you'd go to university. But I think life has got many options now. There are some brilliant apprenticeship programs. My kids go to, uh, are very lucky to go to a very good school, and that school boasts about getting people into good engineering apprenticeships, with as much pride as they would boast getting somebody into Oxford or Cambridge, and quite right too. So I do think that there are lots of opportunities. Right now, there is a dearth of young workers. Companies are snapping people up. So there are lots of options, and also universities, I think, have got a lot to do to prove especially with the way they've been withdrawing tuition during lockdown, prove that they're worth the money.
1: Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Lella. And good luck with your future as well. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening.